In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Evan Thompson, Professor of Philosophy at the University of British Columbia, an associate member of the Department of Asian Studies and the Department of Psychology, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Evan recounts his upbringing in his father's intentional community, the Lindisfarne Association, and shares stories of childhood encounters with teachers of Zen, Sufism, Tibetan Buddhism, yoga, and more. Evan traces his intellectual and academic trajectories and reflects on the problems of community dynamics and religious perennialism that his father's community faced. Evan then outlines his critique of what he calls Buddhist exceptionalism, as laid out in his book, Why I'm Not a Buddhist. As part of this critique, Evan addresses subjects such as why Buddhism is not a science of the mind or of anything else, why presentations of the historical Buddha used by figures such as Goenka are a useful fiction, the problems of borrowing the authority of science for the purposes of Buddhist evangelism, and the surprising influence of Protestantism on Buddhism's development in Asia. Evan also reflects on the future of Buddhism and explores the question, what is enlightenment? So without further ado, Professor Evan Thompson. Professor Evan Thompson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be talking with you today. And I must confess, I absolutely love your book, Why I'm Not a Buddhist. Thank you. Fabulous. And, and we're going to talk about uh, that book and also about your life. And in fact, your life and the subject of that book are, are quite related. You say in the, in the opening of Why I'm Not a Buddhist, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm a philosopher who believes in cosmopolitanism and who also values Buddhism. I like to think of myself as a good friend to Buddhism. My reasons for not being a Buddhist are many and go deep into Buddhism's rich intellectual tradition and my own evolution as a philosopher. Although this book isn't a memoir, there is a personal story behind it. Telling that story is the best way to introduce this book. And then you go on to, to talk about uh, your upbringing, fascinating, actually, uh, upbringing you had. So perhaps you could begin by initially telling that story. Yeah, so what I'm referring to there is my childhood beginning around the age of uh, nine or 10. My father, William Irwin Thompson, and my mother, Gail Thompson, they created an institute and an alternative uh, spiritual, uh, it was an educational institute and, and run as a community. So this is in the early 1970s. My father had been the university professor and I grew up in this context where, on the one hand, it was a residential community in typical 1970s fashion. And on the other hand, there was a kind of constant flow through of religious teachers, philosophers, activists, artists, poets. And they were all brought together around the idea that we needed a different kind of learning and knowledge to deal with the cultural crisis that we were facing and indeed still are facing. So this was really the early days in which things like the climate crisis and crisis of meaning and things like that were being identified. And so I was exposed at a very young age to different meditation teachers, different religious spiritual teachers, including many teachers from different Buddhist lineages, Zen Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism and insight meditation practice. And this was in a community in which there was a daily meditation practice. Um, it was a, it was non-sectarian in the sense that you know some people would practice buddhist forms of meditation in the group other people would be practicing christian contemplative 
practice or um, some people were doing Sufi practices. So it was, it was kind of non-sectarian, non-denominational, but there was a constant flow through of different religious and spiritual teachers in a very intellectual, uh, also political and artistic context. And so that was kind of my childhood as I grew up in that, I was homeschooled in that. And I was a kid who was always, you know, very interested in things that were philosophical and religious and spiritual. So I was very drawn to um, the presence of things like meditation in the group life and the, and the discussions around it. And that was the world in which I lived really as a, as a youngster and then as a teenager before I went away to university. And then when I went away to university, I studied these things you know, more formally in academic setting. I was a Asian studies major as an undergraduate and studied Chinese language and history and studied philosophy and then eventually went on and you know, got my degree in philosophy. And so much of my work, that book, but really all my work in one way or another um, is rooted in that, in that early experience, that early setting. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of a cast of characters of the sorts of <laughs> yeah. teachers, or at least the sorts of traditions and styles, if you don't want to sure. be that specific, yeah. that you encountered when you were a boy and what your impression of them was from the boy's view. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, with regard to Buddhism, uh, the first really living form of Buddhism that I encountered in the form of teachers and actual, you know, live in-person meditation practice. I had read about Buddhism, you know, in books before that, you know, books kind of popular books or books for kids, you know, stories of the Buddha's life and things like that. So I was familiar with Buddhism, but the first actual form of Buddhism that I encountered was in the form of Richard Baker Roshi, who was then the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center. So he was a fellow of the Lindisfarne Association. There were, there were many sort of like a network of people around the world. And he very early on uh, was a friend of my father's and very early on uh, became a fellow of the Lindisfarne Association. So I first encountered Buddhism, actually not through him personally. He, I did meet him uh, at, a, at a Lindisfarne conference. It would have been like 1975, but just prior to that, he sent um, one of his senior monks, Reb Anderson, to live with us in the community and to teach Buddhism and, and Zazen, Zen meditation practice. And so there's a story I tell in the book, actually, um, where I went away to Scotland on a family trip. We were actually visiting Findhorn. Um, some of your listeners may be familiar with Findhorn. So this is like 1974. Um, so really in the heyday of this, you know, alternative Scottish community that my father was very close to and um, had spent time at. So we went away and then we came back. And while I had been gone, um, Reb and um, Reb had arrived and sort of set up a, a Zen practice in the community. And my first reaction to it was actually one of dislike. Um, and the reason I disliked it is I was, you know, I was like 11 or 12 years old. And I was used to basically this kind of community where the kids would run around and be able to do anything. I mean, it was very free spirited. Um, some of the things I think about that we were allowed to do now, I'm kind of horrified by, but it was, it was sort of the early 1970s. Um, and then I came back and, and this kind of aura of, of quiet discipline had descended over the community and you know, from a kid's point of view, you register these little things like 
we had to take our shoes off when we entered into the building. And, you know, we, we were kids with running shoes. We would just run in and out. And so now all of a sudden we had to take off our shoes and we had to sort of be quiet. And the food had changed. It had become like brown rice and steamed vegetables and, you know, things that, that kids aren't too enamored with. And it seemed also to me that the manner was very forced. There was a kind of, um, I mean, I wouldn't have used that word then because I probably didn't know the word, but I would use it now. There was a kind of like sanctimony that seemed to have descended onto things and people's mannerisms. And, um, you know, we had silent meals. And the last thing a kid wants is a silent meal. You know, you want to have a boisterous meal where you're throwing food at each other or doing whatever you're doing. And so we had this like, you know, now formal silent meal. So from a kid's perspective, this all seemed very strange and not very likable. Um, at the same time, you know, there was a way in which I was kind of fascinated by it because there was clearly a sense in which, um, I mean, the way my father put it is he, is he said, well, the, the, the air in the meditation room is thicker now. There's this kind of thick, weighty feeling to, these were just half hour meditation sessions we had at I think 7.30 in the morning before breakfast and then 5.30 in the afternoon before dinner. And I, I didn't go to all of them, but I, you know, I, I would go to them sometimes. I was the oldest kid there. And so I, I, would, I would often go to these. And uh, they, they did have a different feeling. And that was kind of intriguing to me, despite these other things that I disliked. So in any case, so that was, that was sort of Buddhism. But there were other teachers there as well. There were... Um, there were Sufi teachers who were followers of um, Pure Vilayat and Ayat Khan. And the kids actually really liked the Sufi teachers because you got to dance and it was very joyous and open. And um, that was sort of very appealing from a, from a kid's point of view. Um, there, were, there were yogi teachers, yo yoga teachers um, from different kinds of lineages. The, the lineage actually, that I was most familiar with, and this was through my father, who had been raised a Catholic, left the Catholic Church when he was very young, and discovered the Self-Realization Fellowship of Paramahansa Yogananda. This is in California in the 50s. So he became a follower of that um, form of practice and that tradition. And so the first kind of meditation that I ever learned, he taught me when I was six or seven, I suppose, which was a kind of basic... Um, mantra meditation with a sound on the in-breath, a sound on the out-breath, a sort of focal point at the third eye. And that was something that I was, in a kid's way, familiar with. And so the yoga teachers who were there, some of them came through the kind of Shivananda lineage. Um, some of them came through the Yogananda lineage. They, um, they were very familiar to me in, in terms of what they were doing. And that was kind of what I was most drawn to, I suppose. Um, a little bit later, the other, I suppose, strong presence was people who had studied closely with Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. So I'm thinking now particularly of the person I wound up working a lot with, Francisco Varela, very visionary you know, neuroscientist, um, pioneer in the neuroscience of consciousness in a way of, of sort of pioneer of the whole explosion of what we today call the neuroscience of meditation or contemplative neuroscience. He came to Lindisfarne in the mid-1970s, and he was a you know, very serious student of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. So I had a lot of conversations with him about that. 
um, tradition, which didn't really appeal to me. I, I, was, I was at that point, I was a teenager and the scene around that, I didn't care for too much. Um, so in any case, that was, that was another, another uh, tradition and lineage. There were some people who lived with us for a little while from the very early days of the founding of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. One, one person who, who lived with us, who had, had spent time studying uh, in, in the Mahasi Sayadaw lineage, I suppose, mainly. Um, I didn't have as much direct relationship to that at that point. I explored that later when I became an adult a little bit. And there were um, Christian contemplative teachers, um, one person who came to Lindisfarne a couple times and then who I visited later, Father Basil Pennington was one of the pioneers of Christian uh, centering prayer, contemplative prayer. I met him when I was quite young and then, and then visited the Trappist Monastery in, Ma in Massachusetts and spent a little bit of time there. So th these are some of, some of the people uh, who, who kind of flowed in and out. There were actually probably lots more and they, they might come to me at various points of the conversation, but those are sort of some of the high points. Oh, I should maybe mention also, there was at one point, this would have been like 1976, 77, two Tibetan lamas who lived with us, two Rinpoches, uh, Nechung Rinpoche and Gomen Kane Rinpoche, who came to us through Bob Thurman, who had visited Lindisfarne at conferences and who I eventually went away to study with at Amherst College. And so for about six weeks, we had two to these two Rinpoches live with us. They didn't speak any English. So my interactions with them were really limited and were always mediated through a translator, but they were quite interesting because they were very, I mean, they just had a very compelling presence. They were, they were, you know, they were very uh, calm, very sort of radiant, very uh, delightful in how they, and how they interacted just in terms of, you know, facial expressions and affect in a way that actually contrasted quite strongly to me, so I would have been about 15 at the time, with a kind of devotee behavior that I perceived on the part of the, of the Western, you know, American uh, students who visited them. So this is kind of a little bit of the milieu of, of my experience then, yeah. Mm, very interesting. I have a couple of questions about it, actually. What was mm. it about the scene, um, as you described it, of, of Chogyam Trungpa's group that, at least as you would have perceived it at that time, um, yeah. that was just didn't didn't do it for you. Can you put your finger on it? Ah, uh, yeah. So that's a that's a very um, that's a, that's. I mean, in some ways, my feelings aren't complicated, but as you know, that's a that's a a complicated situation. So I would say, in terms of what I saw, this was not the case in Francisco at all. Fran, Fran, my relationship with Francisco was very close and is extremely important and, and formative for me. But when I visited Naropa in, this would have been a little bit later in the 1980s in Colorado, I found the attitude of the people there very, um, it was basically arrogant. It, it was, they, they acted as if they had found out the way things are and anybody who disagreed or challenged it was, was put down or insulted. And I wasn't, terribly impressed by that. And then I had read uh, all of the exposés that existed at that time about Trungpa's behavior, his 
you know, his excessive drinking, his abusive behavior with um, the poet W.S. Merwin and his partner, uh, a lot of the, the, what today we would just call sexual abuse, but, you know, it wasn't called that at the time. It was just called sort of wild behavior or sexual antics. Now we would clearly say that this is abusive behavior. And, and so I was familiar with this and I just thought that this was unkind and uh, manipulative behavior that I didn't find attractive at all. And that I found the community of people around, around them would be very defensive and dismissive of. And that didn't impress me either. So um, that's, that was pretty much my, my reaction to that situation. That's uh, very interesting indeed. And it sounds like the Zen, when the Zen flavor moved in, that it did change, did change the, at least the meditation hall and sometimes the meals quite uh, significantly. Presumably the way things were set up before had some sort of reason behind it or some sort of structure behind it, this freedom, etc. What yeah. do you think, why do you think the group was susceptible, if you like, to the previous way of working being supplanted by this Zen way of working? Maybe I'm overstating the case a bit, yeah. but uh, to what, what do you think, why was there a susceptibility or maybe a receptivity would be a, a more neutral way of saying it to that yeah. Zen influence? Well, I think there's a way in which that question actually goes to a very deep issue. So, so the deep issue is how to think about the relationship between different, um, different religious traditions, different spiritual tradition and traditions and different forms of, of re religious spiritual practice. So the, so the way that that concretely manifested was um, my, my father and, and mother had very much set up Lindisfarne to be non-sectarian. So the idea was that we needed a form of spirituality that was not based in sectarian dogma, where, where traditions related to each other through experience and practice and saw each other as different ways to a common place or as manifestations of different aspects of something that was transcendent and inexhaustible in, in the different aspects that it could manifest. So this was kind of the, the vision under which there could be a meditation hall. I mean, it was very 1970s in a way. There was like, you know, Zafus and Zabutans and tatami mats, but there was also um, the sense that it wasn't a Zen hall. It was a place where there could be different religious iconography from different traditions or no iconography whatsoever. So the idea in any case was it was supposed to be this open non-sectarian environment. So then when we went away as a family for three weeks and we, and we came back and it seemed like Zen had sort of taken over, it seemed very much in violation with the spirit or the, or the, or the mission of, of what we were trying to do. And as a kid, especially a kid who's, you know, edge of puberty, you're sort of very sensitive to these perceived injustices. So there's this idea, no, we're trying to be not one tradition exclusive. We're trying to be open to all. And now it's become, you know, a, a Zen center. At the same time, the, th there was a way in which there was a kind of discipline and seriousness that was different from what had been there before. And 
that was that was you know just just a kind of fact um now the underlying tension then that eventually rose to the surface in the community dynamics is you would have some of the community members who are very committed to the zen practice they you know it spoke to them they they really took to it and then other members of the community who didn't who were much more drawn to say um sufism and sufi practices and had kind of found their way in that and these groups and then there were also you know other people who were um who were christian um the the people there who were kind of from hindu traditions tended to be pretty open and not get caught up in these battles um but it would it, it would manifest in kind of community um dynamics conflict around you know if there's a group meditation at at 7 30 and someone wants to use the space before the group meditation at 7 30 you know are the sufis the ones who are getting to use it are this and once i mean it's very trivial in a way right but but this was a symptom of this kind of community dynamics so what you have is you have two kind of like two things you have interpersonal community dynamics which you have no matter what whenever people live together you know whatever it is they're doing you know people are going to have issues so there's that human reality but then there's also this you could say uh philosophical maybe issue which is well how should we think about the relationship between different traditions because in the 1970s you know coming out of the 1960s the rhetoric was very much you know all paths are different but they lead to the same summit this this kind of metaphor um it's not obviously true that that metaphor there are you know paths are different they may lead to different places um some things may work for some people others not some may be dangerous for some people others not you know this is something we're much more familiar with today but it came out of it came out of a of a older history where the idea was that it, it really in a way came out of interreligious dialogue so the idea is that if we want to get past sectarianism and religious conflict we need a framework for interreligious dialogue and the framework is the idea of experience or you might even say mysticism the idea that there's a kind of transcendent ineffable um grounded in experience path and each religion has its own version of this path and these are the paths that should talk to each other to get beyond the sectarian dogma and you know this is an idea that we see in you know seminal 19th and 20th century religious figures like swami vivekananda and dt suzuki and thomas merton and so it's coming out of this impulse which which i think is is despite the problems that, that it has i think is very positive in in many ways but on the ground how you negotiate that is another matter and then philosophically when you start to you know critically analyze it it's actually not so obvious that it works that that these traditions really are all the same at a deeper level in the way that these certain um thinkers or communities advertise. So the so the community life was in a way a, a a mini version of that whole conversation refracted through you know the inevitable personal personality dynamics and conflicts that you have when you have a bunch of you know I was going to say a bunch of 20 year olds living together but actually we had a pretty good age span in the community. We had we had kids and 20 year olds and 30 year olds and we had some you know older you know um wiser people as well. Mm. Yeah.
you're, you're pointing there to, or how that's often expressed, uh, and one even hears that today is, well, when the when the theologians or doctrine doctrinal people of the religion get together, they disagree. When the mystics get together, this idea of this sort of mystical core or this mystical subset, they they agree. Um, yeah. That's, that, that, yeah, and one hears that today. One definitely does, and there's there's been a lot of discussion around this, both you could say in the study of mysticism, the so-called perennial perspective, where there's this kind of perennial underlying truth that all mystical traditions share versus a way of thinking where mysticism or, or spirituality more generally is really rooted in particular cultural traditions and that it's simplistic to lump them all together and moreover, that it's actually in a way a kind of, um, you could almost say that, that at its worst, it's a kind of false consciousness because it presents itself as a universal unifying view, but it's actually a very particular view rooted in a, in a very particular modern, modern context. So the way that I think of it now, and, and this is actually really a metaphor that, that comes from my dad, it's, it's not my metaphor, is that you know, ecology is a better metaphor. So if you have an ecosystem, you have, if you have a healthy ecosystem, you have biodiversity, you have different niches, different species that are interdependent and related to each other and have to coexist. And they, they have their unique characteristics and then they have their interdependencies. And it's, I think it's better, and this is really related to the theme of cosmopolitanism in my book, I think it's better to think of of different traditions in this ecological, you know, interdependent way, where where traditions really do have their unique, their unique symbols, their unique concepts, their unique practices, their unique emphases, and it's it's just much too simplistic to to say that they all are one at a deeper level. At the same time, um, they can have rich, cross-fertilizing conversations with each other. They can enrich, enrich each other and revise each other. And that's the way you know, a healthy ecosystem with biodiversity works. So that's the way I would think of it now, rather than the kind of all is one perspective or the irreconcilable differences perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting that that sort of a view is its own view, actually. It's a, new, it's, it's a separate it is, thing. Exactly. To, yeah. Yeah. Another variation is the, uh, we're all, it's, everything is one. All the mystics are going in the same direction. And they're doing what we're doing. They just don't know that's what they're doing. So a Christian mystic is just an inefficient Theravada practitioner. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I've heard that one too. I mean, well, so in a way, D.T. Suzuki sometimes says something like that because he says, you know, Zen is not a religion. Zen transcends all religion. Zen is the essence of all true religion. So he says, you know, Zen can be practiced by a Christian. You don't have to be a Buddhist. But the implication is that Zen actually taps into what Christianity is really about at its deepest level better than Christianity does. So, I mean, you, you see that it's a, it's a clever move in a, in, a, in a context where, you know, the West has been culturally uh, dominant, especially in Asian contexts, of course. It's, it's, a, it's a clever rhetorical strategic move, um, but it's also... Uh, it's also obviously problematic yeah mm. and it, i think it's sort of it's emblematic also of what you're you're saying in this book which is that a great deal of our impression of these uh faiths and religions which which we might follow 
is absorbed from our own cultural context. So even in converting to a religion that perhaps originates anyway in a, in a, in a, in a foreign cultural context, we bring a lot of our own conditioning with us. And there's this uh, back and forth. Uh, that's very fascinating and that there's a lot of assumptions that we may have um, that are invisible to us uh, yeah. as we're practicing our religion or non-religion as, as the case may be. Uh, but perhaps we'll come back to that. So I'm curious, your intellectual development, would you mind tracing that? So you, you studied with Robert Thurman um, and uh, went, went beyond that studying Western philosophy and so on. I'm curious if you could trace your intellectual development. So we have a kind of taste test sense of your teenage mm -hmm. years. We're giving us these impressions right. that you gain, but then you start to um, have this intellectual development also. Uh, could, you, could you trace that uh, in, in particular in relationship to how you began to see these, these themes differently as, as that development unfolded? Yeah, so, so I would say that um, in the context of the Lindisfarne Association, you know, I was, I was exposed to a lot of different things and the things that kind of grabbed me and pulled me forward were on the one hand, the scientists and philosophers that I was exposed to. So people like Gregory Bateson, um, anthropologist, systems thinker, uh, Francisco Varela, who I already mentioned. And so that was a concern, let's say, with a scientific understanding, a scientific philosophical understanding of the mind that related it to life and ecology. So that was one strand. And at the same time, so this is now like when I'm, you know, 15 or so, I had discovered Chinese philosophy and in particular Taoism. And I had discovered that in two ways. One was my father gave me, when I was very young, um, the Tao Te Ching to, to, to read. And I was completely captivated by it. It was just, you know, you're a teenager, you know, you open a text, you start reading it, and then it's just like, you know, it just completely sucked me in. And I had discovered, um, or I had been introduced to at the same time, the practice of Taiji Quan, the, the Chinese martial art and health um, movement practice. And I had an immediate response to that as well as something that just completely captivated me and had, had started really studying it seriously when I was 15 or so. And around that time, Robert Thurman came to Lindisfarne and he came to translate for these two Tibetan Rinpoches I mentioned and about, so I, I had met him and, and sort of seen, you know, the possibility of learning another language and being a translator and, and working in this cross-cultural way. I kind of seen it in this very um, live and in-person setting. This was a conference with, with um, you know, Thurman and the Tibetan Lamas and Richard Baker Roshi and Edo Taishimano Roshi, you know, it was a lot of different figures from different Asian traditions, speaking different languages, interacting also with scientists like, um, like Bateson. And so this whole conversation between science and spirituality and the mind really was what I kind of hooked onto as something that I was interested in. So when it came time to think about, you know, going away to university, I wanted to learn Chinese at that point. I wanted to study classical Chinese and I wanted to study um, religion and philosophy. And because I had already met uh, Bob Thurman, my dad suggested, well, why don't you talk to Thurman and why don't you apply to you know, study with him and to go to Amherst? 
And, and that's basically what I did. And so when I went away to university, I studied Chinese language and Chinese history and, and philosophy. And I was there, you know, Bob Thurman was a fantastic teacher and, you know, very compelling lecturer. And so I kind of just dived into studying Buddhism and Asian philosophy with him and got my, got my undergraduate degree in Asian studies. And then I was at a point where I wasn't really sure. I, I knew I wanted to go on academically, but I wasn't really sure exactly which path to follow, you know, religion or Asian studies or philosophy. And one thing led to another, and I decided it was really philosophy that was, that was kind of the, the thread that held everything together for me. And that's, that's what I should really pursue. And then when I, so I went to graduate school in philosophy at the University of Toronto, and it was about my, I think, first or second year into studying philosophy that Francisco Varela, who I had known from Lindisfarne, was moving to Paris to set up a neuroscience lab, and at the same time had been lecturing on Buddhism and, and cognitive science, the you know, scientific study of the mind. And he had transcripts from lectures he had given, and he wanted to put them together into some kind of you know, paper or book. And he knew that I was now interested in you know, studying philosophy of mind and cognitive science in graduate school, and that I had this background as an undergraduate in studying Buddhism, and that, of course, you know, we had also lived together, and, you know, we shared, we shared a, a kind of um, personal friendship, so he invited me to Paris to be his research assistant, and basically the idea was, you know, here are these transcripts of lectures he had actually given at, at Karma Trolling in Vermont, the, you know, one of the centers of um, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche centers, so he, so he said, here are these transcripts, you know, go to work on them, see if you can, you know, um, create something out of them, and to make a long story short, what happened is that we basically wound up writing a book together that became our book, The Embodied Mind, which was published in 1991. And sort of toward the latter stages of that project, a third author joined us, Eleanor Roche, who's a uh, professor of psychology at Berkeley, also a, a serious student and practitioner of Buddhism in, in the lineage, at least originally, um, of of uh, uh, Trumpa. So that was my sort of graduate school phase was in parallel with writing my dissertation <clears throat> on perception, philosophy of perception. I was working on this other manuscript with, with Francisco about Buddhism and, and cognitive science. And then that, that work has basically just in some sense or other been what I've been doing, you know, ever since, ever since then, either working, you know, in cognitive science, philosophy of mind, or in that in dialogue with, with Buddhism or with more generally the science of meditation or contemplative practice. And, and that's kind of ramified and, and the, the, the latest sort of version of thinking about that is the why I'm not a Buddhist book. So I, you know, in that book, I described some of this trajectory, but that, but that in a, in a nutshell is the, is the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating. You know, in the in the very beginning of the book, you begin by praising Buddhism and encouraging its participation in, in today's world. That's something also that you do at the end of the book. And you, you talk about the many valuable contributions that you, you feel Buddhism uh, in, its all, in its many forms uh, has to offer. But then you take aim at Buddhist modernism and what you call Buddhist 
exceptionalism. Perhaps I'll read uh, one line about that. You write, the dominant strand of modern Buddhism, known as Buddhist modernism, is full of confused ideas. They coalesce around what I call Buddhist exceptionalism. Buddhist exceptionalism is the belief that Buddhism is superior to other religions in being inherently rational and empirical, or that Buddhism isn't really a religion, but rather is a kind of mind science, therapy, philosophy, or way of life based on meditations. These beliefs, as well as the assumptions about religion and science on which they rest, are mistaken. So I'm curious, when did you begin to sniff out Buddhist <laughs> exceptionalism? Uh, we're going to go into that topic, of course. What is Buddhist modernism? What is Buddhist exceptionalism? I, I really love if you could, you could sketch those for us. But I'm also curious, sort of biographically, how did you begin to sniff this out? How did you begin to formulate and identify these things? Yeah. Okay. So maybe I'll start with the biographical bit. Um, so this came through my work in the science Buddhism dialogue, particularly through the Mind and Life Institute, which I've been involved with for, for many, many years in, in uh, not so much now, but in, in an earlier phase, I was involved on the program and planning committees for Mind and Life Institute activities, including the creation and um, the running of the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute, which happens yearly, which brings together scientists and contemplative scholars and meditation teachers all around the, the science of contemplative practice. So it was through the Mind and Life Institute uh, maybe I should back up and even say something a little bit more about the Mind and Life Institute. So Mind and Life start, the founding scientist of Mind and Life was, was Francisco Varela. And he originally created it with um, Adam Engel and with um, Roshi Joan Halifax as a way to have scientists meet with the Dalai Lama to talk about science and Buddhism or 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 to talk about the mind, really. The idea was, you know, that the Buddhist tradition, particularly the, the Tibetan um, tradition with its strong scholastic philosophical focus, and also, of course, its very strong contemplative practice, lineages and traditions, that it was a very rich tradition focused on understanding the mind. Western science is a, is a younger, in some sense, tradition, also very focused, especially now in modern times, on understanding the mind, and that these two traditions should be in conversation with each other. So, so Francisco founded the Mind and Life Institute originally as a way of bringing scientists to Dharamsala to engage with the Dalai Lama in discussion of you know, topics pertaining to, to mind and, um, and life in the, in the biological sense. Then in the first couple of years after Francisco died in 2001, it was decided that the Mind and Life Institute would go more visible in public, that it would hold public events and not just uh, you know, private meetings between the Dalai Lama and scientists. And, and so the first public event took place 2003 in, in, uh, at MIT, a, a big conference called Investigating the Mind, exchanges between Buddhism and, and the sciences on how the mind works. Out of that grew the Mind and Life Summer Research Institute, which meets every year, um, bringing scientists and, and contemplative teachers and, and, and scholars together with grad students and postdocs and you know, researchers, sort of all different levels of, of age and experience. So it was through my work with that that I came to eventually be critical 
of how the dialogue was was getting, you might say, refracted or shaped. And this is what I mean by Buddhist exceptionalism, that Buddhism was seen, the, the way Buddhism was being presented so as to engage with science was as a science of the mind and hence as fundamentally different from any other kind of religious or contemplative tradition because it was in essence scientific. So what does that mean? It means that something like insight meditation practice is presented as an inner, you might say introspective science of dispassionate observation and examination and analysis rather than presenting it as you would if you were looking at it more historically, more in the context of its, um, of its religious origins as a kind of um, scripted practice shaped by ritual and shaped by a conceptual system that guides people to have certain kinds of experiences and understand them in certain ways. That was being downplayed this other, I would call scientific or scientized image was being presented as the way to engage with science. And so Buddhist exceptionalism refers, so this is, this is a typical Buddhist modernist move. So Buddhist modernism is a term historians use to refer to a form of Buddhism that we see developing originally in Asia in the context of Christian colonialism. So we see it say developing in Sri Lanka, um, in Japan, in different ways, and it gets exported to the West. And the idea is that you have occupying Christian um, powers that say, you know, Buddhism is backwards, it's superstitious, the religion of the modern world and of science is Christianity. And so the, the, the Buddhist figures are the Buddhist reformers in say Sri Lanka or in Japan are concerned to revitalize Buddhism in their host, uh, in their home cultures by, um, by making it more accessible to lay people and by emphasizing meditation and by emphasizing, and this is a very clever move on this part, by emphasizing that, well, it's actually more scientific. It's the true scientific religion rather than Christianity because Buddhism doesn't hold that there's an eternal self. It doesn't hold that there's a creator God. It emphasizes the law of cause and effect. So we get a kind of scientific rendering of Buddhism as a way to counter the superiority of Christianity. Then that gets exported to the West combined with Western textual academic scholarship that is trying to recover what is presented as original Buddhism through polytextual scholarship. And this is very bound up with European ideas of the enlightenment where the Buddha is presented as kind of like a rationalist figure like Socrates. And the way to um, present him is to do textual scholarship on these poly, poly canon texts, recover an image of the Buddha as a kind of rational free thinker that fits with European enlightenment sensibilities. So you get this kind of Western academic version of Buddhism, textual version of Buddhism, grafted onto this Buddhist reform movement and these two camps are, are, in some instances, talking to each other, exported to the West. And that's what Westerners think Buddhism is. But that's, that's, that's what Buddhism is. When it's not to say that Buddhism it is, isn't that, it's just to say this is an evolving phase in a new Buddhism. I mean, religions always evolve, so there's nothing wrong with that. That's, it's, this is a new phase. 
So Westerners are very attracted to this because they're not satisfied with Christianity. They're looking for a kind of spirituality that's compatible with science. So all of this is the kind of cultural brew out of which Buddhist modernism emerges. And then Buddhist exceptionalism is this idea that this kind of thing isn't happening in Christianity or Judaism or Islam or Hinduism, even though in fact it is happening in all of those religions as well. This is just modernism. It's special in Buddhism. Buddhism is the one that's really scientific. And that's what enables us to then use meditation to enrich science and use science to show the validity of meditation. So you get this kind of mutually reinforcing um, propping up of each other on the part of the neuroscience of meditation and you know modern forms of say vipassana mostly vipassana but not exclusively i mean there's you know zen and tibetan traditions figure in this as, as well and this is then presented in a kind of you could say uncritical way a way that's not sensitive to all of the factors going into its formation and going into um its history so when i started to to kind of understand, at first I didn't really understand it. I was immersed in it. I was kind of caught up in the enthusiasm of this. Um, you know, I, I went on meditation retreats, say at IMS, where you know we're taught insight meditation as, you know, the inner science that can then really bring a new, breathe a new life into the neuroscience of consciousness. And and I I was caught up in the enthusiasm of this too. But then when I sort of stood back and kind of thought about it and learned more about the history. Of Buddhist modernism, then I began to have misgivings. And the deep fundamental misgiving that I had is that it, it's a way of distorting science and a way of distorting religion. Because religion is about meaning and transcendence and transformation and community and ritual. And these are not scientific ideas. They're not anti-scientific but they're not scientific ideas that come about through operationalizing concepts and testing them and rigorously comparing them against controls. They're, they're about meaning and, and norms and value. And so if you then try to collapse that onto a scientific framework where science is conceived as a procedure for validating models and hypotheses through certain kinds of you know, experimental methods, you distort religion and then you also distort science because science shouldn't be in the business of trying to prove or validate religion. I also don't think it should be in the business of trying to disprove or invalidate religion. I think that's as misguided as saying science should be trying to prove or validate art or disprove or invalidate art. I mean, art is a human activity that doesn't get, it can engage very meaningfully with science, but it doesn't get its value from science. And similarly, ritual, meditation, religion, spirituality can engage with science, but it doesn't get its meaning or lose its meaning through engaging with science. So this was really the, the, the deeper issue at, at stake for me in, in, targeting what I what I call Buddhist Buddhist exceptionalism. So just maybe to, to be clear then about what Buddhist exceptionalism is, Buddhist exceptionalism is the idea that Buddhism, even in these modern so-called secularized forms, isn't a religion. 
or is superior to other religions because it's scientific, because meditation is an inner science. That I think is, um, is misguided. Meditation isn't a science. It's a, it's a form of practice, like playing the guitar or um, performing a dance. It's, it's, it's a practice, it's a, tra it's a transformative practice, but it's not a, it's not a science. And saying that Buddhism is specifically rational and empirical is cherry picking because we have analogous forms of, you know, modern liberal Christianity, modern liberal Judaism. In fact, the whole exceptionalism and modernism didn't in Asia didn't start with Buddhism. It started with Hinduism. The first wave was actually was actually Hinduism. So if you read Swami Vivekananda, he presents meditation as a science or Vedanta as a science. And he, you know, he means something by science, and we could have a, a richer discussion of that, but he doesn't mean by science what people today mean when they say science such that they would pick, for example, neuroscience as a way of validating meditation. So Buddhist exceptionalism um, is, is, is cherry picking. It's, it's that we have a context of modernity in which certain things get emphasized, but they get emphasized in all traditions. And in, in different ways, and, and Buddhism is no exception to that. Yeah, that's very, very clear indeed. I'm, I'd like to dive into some of the specifics that you've just touched on there. And of course, in the book, you go into full uh, detail about those. But first, when you started to formulate these uh, arguments and think in this way and make these observations, I'm curious, sticking, I suppose, a bit with our biographical theme. Did that create any conflict, or was there was there pushback? Were you cast out from the yeah. uh, Buddhist modernist uh, church, for example? <laughs> right, uh, right. What were the consequences as you began to think in this way? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's actually how the title "Why I'm Not a Buddhist" came to me. Um, I realized it's a provocative title, and it might read in the first instance as, you know he's going to reject Buddhism and criticize Buddhism, but that's actually not what I do in the book. As I say in the book, you know, I want to be a good friend to Buddhism and here are some things that I perceive that really trouble me. So the title came to me because I was participating in these mind and life events and, you know, also in other events like this, you know, meditation retreat at IMS that I mentioned and some subsequent retreats, um, the meetings at the Upaya Zen Center and Institute. We, we for many years had a meeting called Zen Brain that was a, a yearly uh, combined kind of intellectual discussion slash meditation retreat. It's now called the, the Varela International Symposium. And because I participated in these events, people would, would assume that I was a Buddhist. And so occasionally, you know, I would say, I'm not a Buddhist, or, you know, it would just come out that I'm not a Buddhist. And then I would get different kinds of reactions. So some people were, oh, really? I want to hear more about that. Why aren't you a Buddhist? You know, tell me more. And they were, they were really, they were really, it was, it was as if they felt similar ambivalences themselves and they wanted to hear, you know, okay, so how do, how do you look at it? Maybe this relates to my own experience. Other reactions were more, well, shouldn't you be? Why aren't you? Um, as if there was some problem with me. And this related to my own personal journey, because you could say for many years, I tried in some sense to be a Buddhist, or I experiment sounds frivolous, but I, I 
went through different phases of, well, try is really the right word, of trying to find a way to be a Buddhist. And this was in the context of, you know, the United States, Canada, and Europe. So it wasn't, I was, it wasn't that I was going to Asia and living in a Buddhist culture. That, that's, a, that's a very different kind of experience. It was rather in the, in the Western context of Buddhist centers that were in some sense for Westerners, even if they had been founded or were being directed by Asian teachers, whether you know Japanese or Tibetan or Korean. So I had, I had tried to you know, join these centers, practice in them, and had always come up against resistances in myself that had to do with, um, in a way, you could say my own upbringing in this non, this sort of weird non-sectarian context where, you know, my my dad was a was a very kind of critical intellectual person, and and he emphasized a kind of critical perspective a lot. So I was always looking at things critically, philosophically, and then feeling like, oh, I shouldn't do that. I should, you know, dive in and commit. And then I would dive in and commit, but then I would feel like this doesn't feel right. So I did this through multiple different centers and in, in different places. So the why I'm not a Buddhist was basically a title that had to do with explaining some of this story and some of the reasons why I felt that because of the, the form that Buddhism had taken in the, in the modern Western context, I didn't feel that I could I could be part of that to that I could identify as a as a Buddhist in in that way so I I feel like there's part of your question I I still haven't quite gotten to or or addressed so maybe you you might want to put me a little bit back on track but that but that's sort of the, the autobiographical bit oh oh it was how did people react yes right so you know, as I was thinking these things and writing the book, you know, some people were very encouraging and really thought that this was important. And I think other people were more critical, maybe more apprehensive, maybe felt that I was, um, I, I'm not sure what the right word would be, that I was, uh, that I wasn't, uh, that, that I wasn't, yeah, part of the party anymore, playing along with the game. Um, I, you know, I've had, I've had mixed reactions and I continue to have these mixed reactions actually, um, which I sort of expected would, would happen. So this, this isn't too surprising to me. Yeah. One of the, uh, I suppose, parts of your argument is this, um, which is, I think a bit relevant here is a claim to return to the founder's message is something mm -hmm. that's done in Buddhist modernism, as you describe, and you, and you cite and list several teachers and quote them. Are doing this. Uh, Sam Harris is one, for example, but also here with Goenka, you write S.N. Goenka, a well-known Burmese Indian teacher of Buddhist Vipassana insight meditation, declared that Buddha was not a founder of religion. He was a super scientist, a spiritual super scientist. You quote him later saying it's pure science. You also quote uh, Dzogchen Ponlap Rinpoche, who you describe as a contemporary Tibetan Buddhist teacher, he allows that Buddhism can be practiced as a religion, but says that's not what the Buddha taught. Buddhism is a science of the mind. Dzogchen Ponlap, you, I'm quoting you here, gives a modern image of the historical Buddha as spiritual, but not religious. Siddhartha Gautama, who became the Buddha, embarked on a spiritual quest, eventually abandoned religious practices, 
and found his own answers in an experience of enlightenment that goes beyond all belief systems. And you, you say that about that, we see a typical modern religious move shared by modernists and fundamentalists alike of invoking what the historical founder is supposed originally to have taught as a justification for one's own viewpoint. What we're actually offered, however, is an image of the Buddha that was created by 19th century European Orientalist scholars. Right. And, um, perhaps my favorite line of this chapter, uh, you describe the Buddha as a modernist conceit. Right, right. You also quote Alan Wallace and include him in this sort of a discussion. And, you know, these uh, figures are well-educated, uh, well-informed uh, individuals. Alan Wallace, for example, PhD in religious studies from Stanford, uh, with such an education, he must be aware of the moves he's making. Um, and if not, what's behind these sorts of Buddhist apologetics? Do you think these figures are aware of what they're doing? Are they glossing something? Are they skimming something? How is it that these academics, intellectuals, uh, very marvelous minds in many ways, seem to fall into these traps that you describe in the book? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, so that, that, that's quite a variety of different kinds of people. So, I mean, I don't think there'd be one answer for that would fit everybody. And um, I, I don't want to, you know, speculate about individual motives, but I would, I would say that, you know, in the case of, in the case of Goenka, you know, what he's, what he's doing is, I mean, Go Goenka is an amazing figure. I mean, he's a, he's a very charismatic, powerful teacher. He, he, he really, in a way, creates a kind of modern Buddhist meditation system that obviously has, um, it's not, he doesn't create it out of thin air. I mean, there's, there's strong precedents in, in, in Buddhist practices and Buddhist texts for, for what he's, what he's created. But then as a way of promoting it, he uses this fiction of who the historical Buddha was, where I suppose one way you could, you could describe this is you could say, well, there's a, there's sort of an inside way of looking at this and an outside way of looking at this. So if you're inside the Buddhist tradition and you're speaking within it, of course, you always speak of of the Buddha as a figure, whether you know human or you know super mundane. However, you're 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 speaking of him as a figure who is doing certain things, and the modern version of that is to is to think that when you speak that way, you're speaking about historical fact in a modern academic sense of what historical fact would be, rather than speaking about a figure who's meaningful with, within a tradition. So this is, this is Buddhist modernism, right? So you have a meaningful way of speaking within Buddhism about the Buddha. And, you know, Zen does this by saying, you know, there's the Buddha, and then there's the 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 lineage that proceeds not through text but through direct transmission. The, the lineage of the patriarchs going back to the Buddha. This is not history in a in what an academic historian would understand as history. This is a way of, I mean, really, it's myth. It's it's myth, not in the derogatory sense of myth, but mythos. It's meaning making. It's storytelling. It's narrative. 
you know, within the world of a tradition. And I have no quarrel with that. Absolutely no quarrel with that. Um, I think that's, that's something that we, that we human beings do. But the modernist version is to then present that as if, oh, as a matter of historical fact, the Buddha was not a religious teacher. He was a secular teacher or a teacher who was spiritual in some sense that wasn't religious. If you're going to play that game, then you have to abide by the rules, which are we actually don't know anything about the Buddha as a historical figure. Everything we know about him comes from texts at least one or maybe twice removed from him in a language that he didn't speak, that are preserved orally, then come to be written down, whose written down versions we have centuries after um, the time of the Buddha in a place far from where he lived. And if you actually read the texts, they're full of religious iconography, full of religious imagery. They're embedded in the, you know, the, the Indian, the South Asian world of the time. So you, you, you can't have it both ways. You, you either, you sort of, you know, you're either myth-making within the tradition and speaking in that way, or you're speaking in a way where you're adopting a kind of outside historical perspective but then you have to play the by the rules of that game, and then all those statements don't don't hold up. So, you know, in the case of Alan Wallace, he's he's both. I mean, Alan is you know is a is an educated, obviously Westerner academic with a BA in physics and a PhD in religion, and he can speak in both ways, and he can speak very you know in a very accomplished way in both ways. So it depends how Alan is speaking when he speaks that way. If he's speaking, you know, within the Buddhist community with a certain, you know, kind of, we're all Buddhists. This is how we're, we're as moderners going to understand how to be Buddhist today. I don't have any quarrel with that at all. What I would have an issue with is that if you then think that that's grounded historically in, if you will, the academic or scientific sense of history, and then you're using that to justify or legitimize your mythos way of speaking, and moreover, to use science to legitimize it, then I'm going to have a quarrel with with what you're doing. So that's that's how I would see it. I wonder if this phrase "skillful means" or upaya mm. comes into play here. Yeah. So skillful means in the sense that you you can speak in different ways to different people for different purposes in different contexts of course that, that's absolutely that's absolutely crucial but i would note that skillful means is a buddhist concept so i mean in the in the specific buddhist sense of 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 upaya of 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 skillful means skillful means towards what towards liberation in the buddhist sense of liberation so again if we're speaking you know if the context is here we are we're a buddhist group or a Buddhist community, and I'm going to speak in a certain way for certain purposes, that's fine. Um, but that doesn't translate to a different context so readily. Um, and it's a bit like, I mean, an analogy is suppose you go to Suppose you go to a yoga studio and you're doing yoga and, you know, somebody reads from Patanjali's yoga sutras at the beginning and says, well, you know, yoga is a, is a physical discipline of training the mind and there's nothing really religious about it. 
um, it's, you know, you read the first verses of the yoga sutras, you know, yoga is stilling the cessation of the turnings of the mind or the cessations of consciousness, then, you know, awareness can abide in its own pure nature. You read that at the beginning as a sort of inspiration to focus the practice. And you say, this isn't about religion. This is about spirituality. And this is, you know, what the author Patanjali said. Well, that's really misleading your audience because we don't know who Patanjali was. This is a religious text. And um, you know, presenting it like that in a context that's supposed to be not a religious context is um, isn't right. So it's it, it's very con it's very context dependent. Yeah. Yes, and and that idea, I think, of well, we can have the inside way of speaking and the outside way of speaking, and, and near the twain shall meet. In practice. Um, does it occur? In fact, you, you write here, modern Buddhists invoke science because of its prestige and authority in the modern world. Uh, they rhetorically deploy the term science to promote a particular image of Buddhism, the Buddhist exceptionalist image. And that seems to be done both for purposes of evangelism, as if we can borrow a term. <laughs> yeah, no, I think well, that's right. Yeah, as well as well of exhortation of the faithful. Right. It seems to serve both roles. Um, the skillful means of, of, of exhorting, of, of evangelizing converts, perhaps, or, or, or at least promoting Buddhism, and also the, the means of exhorting existing f followers. You know, you've, you've said, and I'm taking this from your, this quote from your fabulous interview with Robin Wright, uh, which uh, people should definitely check out on YouTube. It's a fabulous one. You actually say the fundamental engine of Buddhist thinking is not naturalistic. The core of Buddhist thought is not a scientific thought. And you talk about the articles of faith that are foundational to Buddhism. I wonder if you could say something about that. Yeah. So um, uh, let me just say before I say that. So, so what you just said, I think, is actually a good point, which is that the inside-outside distinction is actually, you know, problematic because they they feed into and out of each other. So, although we can make this inside-outside distinction that I was making. Uh, on the ground, it's actually it actually is much more complicated. So I think that's a that's an important point that I that I just want to emphasize. Um, so in the case of um, of what I'm talking about with with Robert right there, the idea is that if we if we think about the what I think of as the as the kind of core engine, the sort of core you might say philosophical engine of Buddhism, that that drives it and takes different forms and gets articulated in different ways, of course, throughout history, but nonetheless is in some sense a, a, a driving engine. It's the idea that um, all phenomena, all experienced phenomena, I suppose you could say, all experiential phenomena are compounded they're, they're conditioned by causes, they're, they're composite, they, they have shifting changeable um, parts or elements that go to make them up. Um, anything, and hence they're all impermanent, and hence they're all unsatisfactory, and that liberation or nirvana is the peace that comes from the cessation of craving or grasping onto these elements. And ultimately, at least in you know, one version of how to think about this through the 
cessation of these elements arising at all. So the, the cessation of the aggregates, you could say classically. So this is the idea that nirvana is the unconditioned, nirvana is peace in contrast to the conditioned, this is, this is the driving engine. I mean, the problem is the problem of suffering and conditioned existence. And the solution is the path leading to the cessation of suffering and the realization of the unconditioned. So those are powerful, profound ideas. They are philosophical, they are religious, they are spiritual, they are not scientific in the sense of science that means modern experimental science. They don't come about through testing, experimentation, and modeling. They come about through a certain, you could say, aesthetic, ethical, and soteriological vision of the world, a vision of the world concerned with salvation, concerned with seeing existence as problematic. So that's not something science can prove or disprove. Um, in that sense, Buddhism is not scientific or a science in, in this particular modern way that we use the word science. Of course, you know, we can have a discussion about the word science and its richer connotations. Um, but if we're using science to mean you know, modern experimental science based on building models, generating hypotheses, testing things. Buddhism is not scientific in that way. Once you have adopted a sort of Buddhist framework of meaning and you inhabit it, then of course you can test things in the sense in which we test things through learning. So if you are um, learning to practice meditation, is it the case that meditation calms your mind? Is it the case that it you know, makes you, depending on what type of meditation, of course, meditation isn't one thing. Is it the case that it calms your mind? Is it the case that it makes your interactions with other human beings go more smoothly? I mean, these of course are things we can ask and we can test in an experiential sense of test, but those aren't really scientific methods their, their experiential skill-based methods of, of testing. And they always depend on, you know, the larger background framework of meaning. So, you know, it might seem that meditation is making your life a whole lot worse. You know, you're getting really anxious. You're experiencing agitation. You're ill at ease. Somebody might say, you know, you should maybe not meditate so much, but somebody else might say, yeah, that's good. That's what you're supposed to see. You know, existence is a problem. And everything that you were holding on to and valuing, you now see actually can't be held on to and valued that way. So yeah, that reaction, it's not where you want to end up necessarily, but that reaction is part of the process. And there's no scientific answer to that question. It's a question about value and meaning and, and, um, and, the, and the attitudes of, of different teachers and different, and different practice systems. If I might uh, field a, a popular objection, Mm. Evan, the thing is, the Buddha said, test and see, uh, and I have, and I've meditated and it works. It worked for me. Um, I used to be anxious. I'm no longer anxious, for example, or I've had uh, uh, a mystical experience, uh, an epiphany, perhaps, that, that explains uh, a lot, seems to explain a lot, and also gives me 
I, I'm not the same as I was before. There's been a figure of ground reversal. Surely that proves uh, Buddhism. Uh, it may be that science hasn't quite caught up to Dharmakirti or whatever the case may be, but um, I can say as a first person uh, testing that um, I've had experiences which, uh, to me, prove uh, Buddhism is is true. Uh, you know, this 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 reminds me a little of the um, you know I know Jesus is real he talks to me every day but anyway but you know well, well how, so, come, how can a, we explain these uh, these experiences and well you go ahead yeah yeah no so but I mean that's a good analogy right I know Jesus is real because Jesus talks to me every day so in in certain contexts probably you know the context of most listeners to your podcast I would suspect if if we make a statement like that people will immediately go, oh yeah, okay, so I'm not gonna countenance something like that, people you know, hearing Jesus. But they're perfectly fine with the analogous thing in the context of Buddhism, and that's Buddhist exceptionalism right there. Okay, so my point here is not to say that Jesus is or isn't speaking to somebody or that Buddhism isn't or isn't speaking to somebody. It's just to sort of you know, make the playing field level. Okay, so now, with regard to the Buddha saying, you know, come and see for yourself, um, test it out yourself. You know, modern Buddhists love this sutta where he says this, but it's one sutta where he says it in a particular context to particular people. He says a whole lot of things in other suttas that aren't come see for yourself. So there's some cherry picking that's going on if we say that's the Buddha's message. No, that's one thing that one text says in one in one context. Okay, so now, in the case of any given individual who says, "Well, I read that text; it inspired me. I went and learned meditation. Um, it's improved my life." I'm not going to gainsay that. If you know somebody says meditation improves their life and it's important and valuable to them, um, or even that they then become a Buddhist and devote themselves to Buddhism. I, I, I have no quarrel with that. I'm not trying to convince anybody not to be a Buddhist or not to meditate far, you know, far from it. But to me, it's a bit, what I object to is the idea that if we then say, okay, but science hasn't caught up, science is going to show that, that that's a beneficial thing. I mean, that to me is like saying, um, I learned a musical instrument. And I really derive great pleasure and satisfaction from playing the musical instrument and from performing with other people and from seeing my skill improve and from enlarging my aesthetic sensibility. Of course, that's something that happens to you that you learn from your experience. Now, we happen to know that if you're young and you learn a musical instrument, it's beneficial to the brain, but, but do we need neuroscience to tell us that? No, we already knew that music is a human activity that is valuable, that some people take to it, other people don't. It's the idea of that we have to go use science to validate it that I think is misguided. Of course, if you think of meditation as a skill, a practice that improves your life and you experience that, then by all means do it. I, I have no quarrel. I have no quarrel with that. But I could say the same thing about centering prayer or about Sufi dancing. 
they might or might not lead you into becoming a Sufi or to becoming a Christian. It's hard to say, but they might. They're analogous to me. The, 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 what follows from that is there are different kinds of practices that enrich people's lives in different ways in different settings, depending on their personality, their history. But the idea that we're then going to use a scientific framework to give the, the meaning of what that practice is and what it's about and to validate it, that, that's what I object to. Another, I think, popular objection to your position would be something like, well, okay, modernism, relatively recent Buddhist modernism, uh, but of course the history of Buddhism, intellectual history is much longer than that. We have great philosophers, elaborate philosophy of mind, um, elaborate metaphysics. Uh, we could think of, of, many, of many great writers um, in India, Tibetan, uh, very elaborate. There's nothing really comparable to that in say Christianity, for example, there aren't those sorts of sophisticated thinkers in quite that same way, or rather, if maybe they don't go that far, I might say something like, well, there's something uniquely sophisticated about the, the Buddhist um, lineage of philosophy and thought uh, that uh, is perhaps precedes or anticipates the sorts of things that neuroscience is only beginning to discover. That certainly is something that one hears quite a bit. Yeah, one does hear that. Um, so uh, I think that the first part of what you said is absolutely true, and I agree with completely. The second part I disagree with completely. So the first part is that Buddhism has an incredibly rich intellectual tradition of philosophy, you could say psychology, metaphysics, epistemology. Uh, there's no question of that. Um, you know, the, the Buddhist tradition of, of, of intellectual thought in India and Tibet and then in a different, you know, style in China and Japan, Korea, and now in, in the West. This is why I say at the very beginning of why I'm not a Buddhist, Buddhism is one of our richest traditions. And by our, I mean humanities. It's one of our, you know, richest traditions of philosophy and of, and of community and of, um, and of practice. The idea though, that that makes Buddhism unique that, that Buddhism is unique in that regard, I think is simply not true. I think that we have equally sophisticated and rich intellectual traditions in, in Hinduism, in Confucianism, in Christianity, in Islam, in Judaism. Of course they differ, they emphasize different things, they focus on different issues and problems. So each tradition is unique, but it's not, it doesn't make sense to say one is more unique because like unique isn't something that has degrees in that, in that sense. So this is why the analogy for me with Buddhist exceptionalism is American exceptionalism. So American exceptionalism is the idea that the United States is not just a unique nation. Every nation is unique, of course. France is unique, Ireland is unique, China is unique. It's not just that it's a unique nation, it's that it, it can't be analyzed or understood in terms of the concepts and methods that we use to analyze other nations historically or politically, and that it has a unique mission and destiny in the world, which is something like you know, democracy and freedom. The analogy with Buddhist exceptionalism is Buddhism isn't just unique. Of course, it's unique. Christianity is unique. Islam is unique. Buddhism is unique. It's that it's 
unique in not being analyzable in terms of concepts and methods that we use to think about other religions, like spiritual practice, like, like ritual, like textual traditions, like community, like answers to questions about transcendence, like a notion of the sacred, like an understanding of how to deal with human suffering. Every tradition has its own unique way of dealing with those, those fundamental things about human existence. Buddhist exceptionalism is the claim that Buddhism has some sort of special way of proceeding that can't be understood in terms of them and moreover makes it scientific in a way that those other traditions aren't. And that I think is just not, not the case. I think that that's apologism and um, it's just not demonstrable. So if, if we wanna be specific, you know, you could say that yes, Dharmakirti has a very rich account of sense perception and how we form concepts. That's extremely interesting from a cognitive science point of view. And I, I've actually written in detail on this in some of my you know, more academic writings. But Confucius has an extremely rich understanding or Confucian thinkers like, like Mengzi and, and um, Zhu Xi, they, they have an extremely rich understanding of interpersonal human relationships and of virtues and of ritual. And that's extremely interesting from the perspective of modern moral psychology. So what I would urge is that we, is that we appreciate the incredible richness of the human community and its different traditions that focus intellectually on different things, but that we don't raise one up and say it's more scientific than another one. I have a question, Evan, an easy one. Mm -hmm. what, what is enlightenment? <laughs> Let me say something. Let me say something else about that. You know, uh, many practitioners of Buddhism begin and end their sessions, dedicating themselves and their efforts towards their own enlightenment and the enlightenment of all other uh, beings, all sentient beings, and so on. Of course, within Buddhism, there's great uh, diversity here, but also there's a specific way of en uh, that enlightenment is viewed in Buddhist modernism, uh, which is quite interesting. You characterize right as saying uh, that enlightenment uh, is feeling without the craving, that feeling is inevitable, but liberation from the craving is one way of thinking about enlightenment. Maximum, uh, to quote Shinzen Young, who you also quote in the book, although not this mm -hmm. quote, maximum poignancy minimum problem, mm -hmm. this sort of idea. So I'm wondering if you could, of course, to sketch how enlightenment's been viewed through all Buddhist history is, is uh, too much for, for here, but I'm wondering if you might uh, say as much as is relevant there, and, and how is Buddhist modernism uh, conceiving of enlightenment? What are people working towards who are practicing, meditating, etc., retreating um, with an aim to become enlightened? What are they doing? What do they think they're doing? Yeah, that's a very large, rich, and complicated question. <laughs> Not a simple question by any means. Um, so the first thing I would say <clears throat> is enlightenment is an English word that is used in the Buddhist context as a result of Western scholarly decisions to translate bodhi, which means awakening or awakened, in a way to speak to the Western world. And it comes out of, first of all, the metaphor of the European enlightenment. So Max Mueller is the one who uses enlightened to refer to the Buddha. 
actually in an article he wrote anonymously for the Times of London in 1860 or something like that. He uses the word enlightened to refer to the Buddha and he takes the word enlightened, of course, because there is the European enlightenment, Kant's famous essay, What is Enlightenment? Kant's answer is think for yourself, don't rely on others. And Mueller is, is using the word to connect Buddhism to the European enlightenment, very much in keeping with, with this idea that you mentioned earlier that the Buddha said, you know, come see for yourself, think for yourself in this, in the, you know, Kalama Sutta, for example. So Mueller in his like European philological workshop, his, you know, his office in Oxford is, is taking this English word as a translation. So it's a metaphor, right? The metaphor of illumination of light, which has deep history in Christianity. And indeed going back to the Greeks, he takes this word to translate actually a different metaphor, which is the metaphor of waking up or awakening. Which is which is the which is the root metaphor in Buddhism. So that's just to note that already when we use the word enlightenment, we're thoroughly inhabiting Buddhist modernism. That's not a criticism. I, again, Buddhist modernism is part of the evolution of Buddhism. So when I say Buddhist modernism, it's not meant to be critical or derogatory. It's simply to signal that that's the universe we're in. Now, that notion or let's say the notion of awakening, I think of as, to use a kind of technical philosophical term, as a kind of regulative ideal, a, a regulating ideal, or, or, or sort of asymptotic point. So the idea of a, a regulative ideal is that there's how things work, and then there's the ideal under which you sort of understand how things work and how you organize them to be. So you know the ideal of living a maximally good life as a way of organizing your relationships with people or the ideal of le leaving like a minimal sort of carbon footprint and then organizing your life around it. You know you're not going to be able to live up to it, but you do your very best. So awakening is an ideal in that sense. If you, if you sit down to practice with a, a vow to attain awakening and then a vow to attain awakening for the sake of all sentient beings, you know, a kind of Mahayana Bodhisattva vow, that's, that's an ideal. It's, it structures everything that you're that you're doing. You might, you might understand that in a way where there's an ideal of awakening in this life, you know, say a, a sort of tantric framing, or you might understand it as awakening is impossible in this life. Um, countless lives are going to be needed to attain it, but this is the ideal that I set. Or it might even be this world is a world in which um, there's so much suffering and corruption and pain and torment that really all I can do is kind of relinquish myself to the Dharma and recite you know, the name of Amitabha Buddha so that I could be, born, re, be reborn in a pure land where I can really have the possibility of attain awakening. You know, all these different forms that awakening can take to frame what it is that one's, one's doing happen throughout the history of Buddhism. So, so first of all, I would so so sort to summarize two points. One, you know, enlightenment is actually a Buddhist modernist idea. Two, if we look at the root idea of awakening, it has this sort of regulative ideal status, very much like salvation in Christianity. You know, being saved functions. It's not the same notion, of course. The content of these notions is different, but they function analogously in the two in the two traditions. 
Now, then we get into more complicated discussions about, okay, but what, it, what might awakening be experientially? And there I would say that this is true throughout the history of Buddhism up to the present day. That depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, different teachers, different traditions say different things about that. And the way that I then discuss this in the book is to say that awakening or enlightenment, if you will, is actually a concept. And what we mean by awakening or what, the ex what counts as an experience of awakening depends on the concept or depends on the understanding of awakening that's in play. So my analogy is love. If we say, what is love? Um, well, there's lots of different kinds of love. There's romantic love. There's filial love. There's um, love for a pet. There's, um, you know, there's selfless love. Like love is not one thing. Even if we restrict ourselves to romantic love and we ask, what is romantic love? Well, medieval courtly love is romantic. Can we experience that today? Almost certainly not, because the cultural, conceptual, ritual framework isn't in place to make that a possibility of experience for us today. I would say similarly for things like awakening. Awakening in its maybe early South Asian form was tied to asceticism. And those form of ascetic awakenings where experiences of say cessation, certain kinds of cessation and meditation, cessation of, of thought and feeling, maybe analogs are, of those are experienceable today, for sure. Asceticism happens today. Cessations of thought and feeling, you know, can happen under various contexts today. But the way of understanding it that's tied to the ascetic culture of India in the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries BCE, well, that's not so easily accessed. So my point here is that like medieval love or love today or ascetic awakening or awakening today, say in the West, we have different concepts in play and they are actually going to shape the kinds of experiences we have and, and how we understand them. Now, the way that this is important in relationship to Buddhist exceptionalism or Buddhist modernism of a certain sort, a kind of what I would call scientistic sort, is the idea that you could say measure awakening in the brain, that you could identify an experience as an awakening experience and then specify its biomarker in terms of a say a certain kind of pattern of neural activity this to me is as confused conceptually as thinking that you could identify what love is in the brain of course you need a brain to experience love and you need a brain to experience awakening in the human life but thinking that you can then say what love is or what awakening is by identifying its biomarkers is just a category confusion, a kind of category mistake. Because awakening, the meaning of it experientially resides in a different domain from the domain of what you measure when you 
hook someone up to EEG or to fMRI because it's an experience shaped by culture and community and society and practice and ritual, even if you're a hermit. A hermit is a social category after all. And hermits are, the, the people, people who are hermits understand the meaning of what they do as hermits by contrast with not being a hermit. And that's a social distinction, right? So, um, so, I mean, the short answer is there is no one answer to what is awakening, even if we look at it historically within Buddhism to say nothing of what other traditions like Hinduism um, what other sort of contemplative meditative traditions in the Asian context like Hinduism might understand by it. There is no one answer to it. And it's profoundly shaped by our cultural concepts and practices. What's going to count as awakening. Yeah, this has been so fascinating. Um, Evan, thank you. I've been grilling you now for an hour and 40. So, <laughs> That's quite uh, great. I, I have a time. I have a couple of questions to finish, actually, two, in fact, mm. specifically. The first one is you, you point out that Buddhist modernism is really heavily influenced by Christian Protestantism in, in particular. I'm wondering if you if you could point out some of the Protestant uh, flavor or characteristics of Buddhist modernism in specific perhaps in, in terms of its practice or its ideas. If you could illuminate those specifically, that would be very interesting. Yeah, so the idea that's very familiar to us, I think, of um, meditation as a way of having a direct personal experiential relationship to life or to the possibility of awakening or to the Buddha um, or to the sacred, that is that's that is a Protestant idea. So you know, Protestantism emerges historically with a rejection of the idea that one's relationship to the divine is needs to be mediated through the hierarchy of priests. And there's an, an emphasis on a direct personal relationship. And then, and this is very much connected to something we were talking about earlier, which is the emergence of, let's say, mysticism as a category, which is, you know, writers like Rudolf Otto, um, other uh, you know, other writers like Evelyn Underhill, although she actually was um, eventually became became Catholic. She was Catholic. Her husband was Protestant. They they present prayer or meditation or religion as about an individual's personal relationship, often you know in community, but with an emphasis on the person having a direct relationship to the sacred, the transcendent, the divine. Buddhist modernism does this with its emphasis on meditation as an individual personal practice of transformation. So, you know, historically we see this very clearly in what happens in Zen in Japan in the 19th and 20th century and then how Zen comes to the West. So a writer like D.T. Suzuki is very influenced by William James, his notion, James's notion of pure experience. So James writes about the varieties of religious experience, has a discussion of mysticism, also has this idea of pure experience before concepts really um, kind of chunk things and categorize them. D.C. Suzuki um, latches onto this idea also in conjunction with Kitaro Nishida, a very you know, important formative philosopher of modern Japanese philosophy, 
educated in European philosophy, but also a Zen practitioner. And so we see the idea of Zen presented as, as direct experience or pure experience, the idea of, of pure experience as a way of being related to the transcendent or the sacred, you know, outside the contingencies of history or society or culture. This is very much a, a, a Protestant idea in its, in its inception and in the way it um, travels to Asia, gets picked up by Asian thinkers. They use it to recast Buddhism, say Zen, then it gets exported to the West. Um, we see the same kind of phenomenon in Hinduism with Swami Vivekananda. So mo modern Buddhist, Buddhist modernism at one point used to be called Protestant Buddhism, um, but scholars came to you know, reject that term. It's, it's not a good term, Protestant Buddhism. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of, uh, I mean, in certain ways it's an offensive term actually, um, because it's you know, using one tradition to, to label another tradition. But this idea about individual experience as, as a direct relationship to, um, to meaning or transcendence or to illumination. That is, that is very much a Protestant idea. And in terms of the history of Buddhism, let's say prior to Buddhist modernism or prior to modernity, you, you wouldn't necessarily see that idea presented that way. You see an emphasis on preserving the tradition through knowing scripture, through knowing ritual, through administering the monastery, or if you're a lay person, through um, giving to the monastery so that they can, you know, administer the rituals of, you know, birth and death and marriage and so on. And this idea of um, a, a personal relationship to awakening, this is taken up by Buddhism as a way of actually then modernizing and counteracting the um, the oppressive influence of Christianity, say in you know Japan or Sri Lanka. The Christian way of expressing that, of course, is it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Yeah, right, right. That seems so core to how Buddhism is presented uh, uh, most commonly in, in the modern world. This idea of it's a personal path of transcendence or a personal path of liberation uh, are you saying that that was wholly absent or can you clarify a little bit the degree how far are you going with that no i'm not saying that i'm not saying that throughout the history of buddhism there haven't been people who've meditated who haven't been transformed through meditation i'm saying that that probably was not emphasized in quite the way that it's emphasized today. And that's just a purely descriptive statement. There's no, there's no value judgment in that. If we then ask, okay, well, what do we want to say about that? Maybe from a more normative or, or ethical perspective rather than a purely descriptive one, then I would say on the one hand, I think in, in modernity, we have, you might say, a kind of democratization of the possibilities of experience that are opened up through meditation practice. You know, historically, that's probably not been, it's not been like that prior to modernity. 
And there's a lot to be valued in that. At the same time, it happens in the context of a culture and a society that's deeply rooted in a kind of individualistic consumerist narcissism. And so it reinforces negative things about our culture at the same time that it democratizes things and opens them up to more people than they would have been available to before. And so I think the challenge that we face in our time is how to navigate or negotiate the benefits and the perils that are that are present for us that are that are unique to us i think fascinating you know there's so much more uh, that I, i'd love to talk with you about but we won't we won't have time now but i i must recommend uh, why i'm not a buddhist by evan thompson and some other things that you know just to wet the appetite craving as maladaptive is common sense <laughs> <laughs> that's very interesting metacognition is social cognition mm. oh yeah yeah there's some good ones there you know I'm wondering uh, what you see as the future of Buddhist exceptionalism. Do you think it can last? That, that's one question. And another question, and once again, this is, I think, perhaps poorly framed, but playful. Is there anything that could convince you that Buddhism is exceptional? So these are two questions. What's the future mm. of Buddhist exceptionalism? And is there any, any situation or context? And I know this is the, the framing of this question is completely wrong, but that's sort of the point um, that could convince you that Buddhism is, in fact, exceptional. And maybe... As, as we do occasionally see, you might write a sequel to this, why I am again, or uh, why I am now a Buddhist. <laughs> That's a great question, right. Well, so I don't want to, um, I don't want to limit my options or foreclose the possibilities of the future or think that I have some sort of privileged perspective from which I could predict the future. So um, I can't say what my, where my journey will take me in terms of my life and future, future book titles. Um, I, I would say that um, were I to become a Buddhist, it wouldn't be because I, be, I became convinced that Buddhism was exceptional. I, I'm pretty confident in, in, in that. Um, that is, I, I really think that, that Buddhist exceptionalism, again, I, I have to be clear here, it's not that Buddhism isn't unique or that Buddhism isn't special. It is. But I would say by the same token, you know, Christianity is unique. Christianity is special. Hinduism is unique. Hinduism is special. Taoism is unique. Taoism is special. Um, in that sense, I'm, you know, I'm a pluralist. In fact, my, my college roommate referred to me as a non-aligned mystic. That's what I, that's what he thought I truly was, um, which is probably, probably true. Um, I have a, you know, a, a deep, sympathy and interest in mystical traditions, and I'm a pluralist about them. Um, but I do think Buddhist exceptionalism is, fun, is fundamentally misguided. It's, it's philosophically confused, and I think it's harmful. I think it, I think it harms Buddhism. So this is another thing that's in, that in the book I say, is that you know, Buddhist exceptionalism is harmful to Buddhism, it's harmful to religion, it's harmful to science. So we should see it as something that arose in a particular context for particular historical reasons, but that we that we need to get beyond in the in the same way that American exceptionalism is is harmful. Um, as to its future, you know, I hope Buddhist exceptionalism doesn't have a future. I, I very much hope that Buddhism does have a future. I think Buddhism is an extremely important tradition. I want to remind people that I'm talking in the limited context of Buddhist modernism in the West. Buddhism is incredibly 
rich and diverse across all of the Asian societies in which it lives. My book is not about that. And it would be extremely arrogant and presumptuous of me to think that I'm speaking about Buddhism in those cultural contexts and, and I'm not. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not someone who thinks that our cultural task is to get rid of religion, to have spirituality without religion, to get beyond religion. I think religion is part of what it is to be human, just as art is, just as science is. My concern is to make religion, you know, healthy in itself and in its interactions with science and religion. And so I very much hope that Buddhism continues to be present and to be, you know, alive and healthy in our world. And so my argument is not is not against Buddhism in that in that sense at all. But I think Buddhist exceptionalism is detrimental to that to that effort. Well, Professor Evan Thompson, this has been absolutely delightful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.